0: Welcome to Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack DeRora. And uh, today, uh, Jack, our venue is uh, somewhat appropriate. We're uh, recording from the uh, OSU studios on the Ohio State University campus, and we're going to be talking about uh, young people.
1: That's right. We're going to be talking about what makes the younger mind function, or maybe not function so well.
0: It um, makes me recall an incident from my uh, high school days. Hmm. Um, I was um, given a uh, green duster to drive, Plymouth Duster. Very embarrassing car, but it was passed down from my sisters to me and it was missing a gas cap. And back then the gas caps were just a part of the the frame of the car. You just unscrew it and leave it somewhere and you'd be without a gas cap. Right. So one day at a party, I noticed the neighbor had a red duster, like mine, with a gas cap attached to it. (laughs) Somehow that gas cap (laughs) made it to my duster. (laughs) And a couple hours later, of course, the police show up Mm -hmm. at the party and want to know why my green duster has a red gas cap and his red duster has none. And um, after uh, feigning ignorance and uh, promising to give it back, uh, the police left. But it just reminds me how... As young people, we do things that are very stupid.
1: I have stories, too, but I'm not going to reveal any of mine.
0: (laughs) Well, one that uh, comes to mind from a legal perspective, and I don't know if you remember this case, but a uh, young man, uh, Matt Alim, uh, was 16, and he robbed a couple of people with a gun and was charged with aggravated robbery. Um, He went to the juvenile system, and at the time, there was what's called mandatory bindover meaning that if you commit certain crimes, it's mandatory that you're tried as an adult, In which happened, he was tried, convicted. And that case worked its way to the Ohio Supreme Court, and in December of 2016, the Ohio Supreme Court said that that was unconstitutional. Beautiful. It was, a very good, well-written decision. Five months later, May 2017, the Supreme Court reconsiders its decision in that case and determines that, in fact, it's not unconstitutional and reinstated the mandatory bind over. Do you know what changed in those five months? The composition of the court? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. A more conservative court, a more conservative uh, approach to juvenile justice. And I know this subject... um, interests our guests, uh, Dr. Sarah Denny. Um, you, if I uh, read the things that you've written, would like to do away with the mandatory bind over. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. You know, there's a lot of science around the adolescent brain and that it's not the same as the adult brain. And so um, treating them as if they do have the same abilities for to make decisions and that type of thing um, doesn't make sense when we're thinking about the sentencing of, of juveniles in these crimes.
0: So the juvenile uh, justice system is developed by our legislature. Have you been or have you uh, petitioned the legislature for any changes? Um, Well, we've been working with
2: the juvenile justice system on a lot of different things, and I think that there's a lot of people with these efforts trying to um, improve the sentencing as well as just the conditions for youth that are uh, justice involved. So, you know, right now with COVID, you know, um, we don't want people being increasingly isolated. We want to provide COVID vaccines to the youth that are um, currently detained. We want to provide them with counseling services. So many of these, and I think we'll probably get to this um, in our conversation, so many of these justice-involved youth have ACEs, which are the adverse childhood events that really cause changes in the genetic transcription at the cellular level that affects their ability to cope with stressful situations and and how they react to those situations. So, you know, making sure those counseling services are in place, that they have educational options or career development options um, so that they can continue to grow and become more responsible adults working on that frontal lobe where that decision-making, that executive um, decision-making happens.
0: In our um, system, and I think in most states, 18 seems to be the the cutoff date. Uh, If you are under the age of 18, you first uh, go to the juvenile system, and if you're above the age of 18, what's magical about that number, if anything?
2: There really isn't. I don't I mean, I'm sure that all three of us could tell a story about something we did when we were 19 that was not done um, in a very smart way or that was not done very responsibly. So we know that the brain isn't fully mature until the mid the early to mid 20s. So definitely our 19 year olds are not, um, you know, do not have that mature frontal lobe My friends and I, whenever our teenage children do something dumb, we just say IFL, immature frontal lobe. Like, (laughs) they know not what they do. They don't make these good decisions because their frontal lobe is is immature and it's just the way teenagers are sometimes.
1: My dad had another reference for that. It wasn't IFL, it was just dumb kid.
2: Well, yes, that too.
1: (laughs) So that's interesting. You say the frontal lobe doesn't really reach the maturity level till early to mid-20s, you said. Mm Is that consistent or is that related to what I thought I heard from the American Academy of Pediatrics, that marijuana is not a good idea for people under 25? If I got that right, then what's the connection there?
2: Yeah, that, that is ex- exactly right. Um, you know, the, the use of marijuana can change the developing brain. And so we know that the brain is still developing in the early 20s. So there is risk there with the use of marijuana and other, you know, brain-altering drugs even nicotine, um, at those earlier ages.
1: So if the brain doesn't fully develop until mid, early to mid-20s, and I suppose if you were in charge, you would change the criminal justice system so that there's not a hard line as to the difference between juvenile and adult court, or at least you'd extend it a long way off past 20 my right?
2: Sure. And, you know, we can look at the foster system, for example. The, what's, the what system? The foster care oh, system. Okay, so it used to be that when youth got to age 18, they were out of the foster system and, and left to fend for themselves. Well, gosh, I, I still use my parents for support and asking them how to do things. I call my mom probably once a day to ask her for her advice on something. So here we were just dumping these youth who don't have that built-in support to fend for themselves with Sometimes not even the basic knowledge as to how to open a bank account or how do I make a doctor's appointment, all of these things. So policy was then put in place to extend that age for federal support and other su- systems of support um, into the 20s. And you know if they remained in school, and so there was a lot of changes to our foster care system that acknowledged that they're not ready to be completely independent you know at the age of 18. And we need to continue to support these youth as they develop and become more independent.
0: There seems to be some recognition in the law of that. Um, For example, if a a child is uh, under the age of seven, they can't be uh, held to be negligent in the court. Um, The juvenile justice system, the criminal system, if you're uh, 15 or younger, you cannot be tried as an adult. So I'm assuming there was some basis for those decisions on age. Uh, has the um, have there been more studies has the research uh, uncovered more evidence of, of what we're talking about
2: well neuroscience continues to evolve and the the advances that they're making in brain function um, children who have been living with uh, continuous toxic stress and in the, in the biological changes that are made the decrease in neuronal connections have continued to be made um, and we're understanding that piece a lot better um, especially you know the the effects of toxic stress and the long-term health outcomes, but also what we can do as a system to um, provide resiliency for those children who have experienced toxic stress and adverse childhood events.
1: So it's not just a matter of the front lobe being developed. It's also a matter of some number of these youngsters who are in trouble with the law have had a number of complicating factors in their life.
2: Yes. Yes. There's really good data. Um, The adverse child events study um, looked at these different ACEs is what we call them. And and to name a few ACEs would be the victim of physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, emotional abuse, neglect, having parents who are divorced, having a parent with mental health disorders, having... um, an incarcerated parent or a family who abuses drugs. And the data is very clear that regardless of socioeconomic status, the more ACEs you have, the more um, physical outcomes. So increased risk of cancer, increased risk of um, depression, anxiety, risk of suicide, risk of um, unintended pregnancy, infant mortality. I mean, there, there's significant health outcomes associated with these ACEs. So it's, it's very well documented.
1: And it would seem to me... That the average legislature, legislator who's considering this matter, it's certainly not intuitive, all these things that you're talking about. For the three of us from where we are professionally and how we grew up, this is another part of life that mm-hmm. it, we just don't touch most of the time.
2: No, that's true. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot with our trainees is that you may be looking at an adult who looks like they're 40 years old, and chronologically they are 40 years old, but they may have had trauma in their life, in their childhood, that changed the the function of how their brain copes with stress. And so when they're responding to a stressful situation, they may not be responding as that 40-year-old adult. They may be responding as that nine- or ten-year-old who experienced trauma in their youth um, because their brain has structurally changed and their coping mechanisms are not as matured and developed as someone else.
1: You said something interesting. Uh, You said the brain structurally changes. This isn't just how it works. We're talking about you could couldn't you actually compare if you had two different brains?
2: Yeah. So down at the cellular level, if you look at a neuron, which remember back in biology, the neuron is that cell in the brain that has all those dendritic connections. If you look at a neuron from a child who's experienced um, multiple ACEs compared to a child who has not, the child who has experienced multiple ACEs has... Far fewer of those dendrites that go out and make connections to other cells within the brain. The child who has not experienced all the ACEs has many, many neuronal connections to other cells in the brain. So it is at the very basic cellular level. It even affects um, the transcription of when um, the genetic transcription.
0: I don't see, though, that uh, these genetic uh, or these uh, changes in the cellular level should. Uh, excuse criminal behavior and especially in adults Um, you know there's uh, uh, our criminal justice system is uh, a retribution system a penalty-based system Um, how do you propose to factor in this though Mm -hmm. because it seems to me it should be a factor but it shouldn't be an excuse or a get out of jail free card
2: Absolutely, no. I agree. I just think that we need to look very holistically at all the all the different factors at play, and really, most importantly, those who are detained, whether they're at the, in the juvenile system or the adult system, we just want to make sure we're not creating more Aces. We don't want to make more trauma in these in these people who may already have experienced extensive trauma in their lives. We want to provide support to help build resiliency, um, so that you know, ideally, if they do get out, when they do get out, um, they have some healthier coping mechanisms. And um, we've done our part to make the situation better instead of worse.
0: The uh, law takes a long time to catch up with science and medicine. Um, I know that the, um, uh, you know, executing people with disabilities is making its way through the court system. And um, certainly the Ohio Supreme Court has come out um, in, and. uh decided that juveniles should not get life sentences or death sentences so uh, i think there is a change do you see that is it is there something positive happening
2: absolutely i mean the fact that even you know within this century we were still putting youth to death you know and sentencing sentencing juveniles to the death penalty blows my mind so Mm. there definitely has been progress absolutely and i think continuing to recognize that um you know the child that we were when we were 16 is not the adult that we are today um and so yes people do make mistakes and and do commit crimes and and do need to um have a consequence for that absolutely but making sure that we're being reasonable in in what we're sentencing these youth um for i think is really important
0: how do you uh or or have you thought much about um the rehabilitation in the juvenile court system, because what we're talking about then is an immature person committing a crime that then, um, it seems to me, if you read through the statutory framework for these uh, juveniles, if the court's convinced they can be re- rehabilitated, they'll stay in the system. Um, what are your thoughts on what can be done?
2: Well, I mean, I don't know the data around the, um, the different programs and what makes you know, one successful versus another. But I do know within the state of Ohio, especially during COVID, they're really making a lot of efforts to um, look at other options to not have the youth detained, to have the youth as long as they can be safe to their community and safe to themselves in programs within the community as opposed to having them detained.
0: When you talk about the ACEs, though, and the multiple ACEs, it seems to me that there's going to have to be some type of therapy, um, uh, some type of um, um vehicle to come to grips with 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 the multiple stressors. Uh, what does medicine provide for that?
2: Well, you know, there's a lot of things that can build resiliency. Part of it just has to do with the individual's personality. Part of it has to do with having a trusted adult in their lives who they can count on. And that Maybe a parent, it may be an aunt or uncle, maybe a teacher, maybe a coach. So you know, just identifying those those sources of structure, maybe it's faith-based. maybe it's related to a sport or a hobby or music, um, but having those things that um, they can make connections with. Um, but therapy also is obviously a really important um, piece of it, especially when we're talking about, healthy coping mechanisms and how you deal with stress and how you deal with anger, especially. Um, so yeah, counseling is critically important and that would obviously be something that, um, you know, I encourage all my patients, um, who are, who are having actually having problems or not. I really think counseling is, is really helpful for, for anyone.
0: A lot of times in law and you probably had a, a similar, um, uh, teacher as me, but he would say, um, you know, you've got the truck going downhill without its brakes. And is that an emergency situation that excuses the truck driver's negligence or is the truck driver negligent? And so as you're struggling with that as a law student, he then explains, you got to look back oh, in time, damn. you know, were the brakes looked at by a mechanic. Did he have any other problems? And I think this subject here takes us, seems to me, back in a youth's development. Yeah. We need more programs, it seems to me, to deal with these issues before they get to the point where this young man or woman is pointing a gun at somebody, stealing their wallet. Um, uh, That's like many of our societal problems, I think, uh, can be dealt with early on. Uh,
2: I could not agree more. Absolutely. Those, Those early interventions to prevent us from getting to that point where they are justice involved, I think, really, really make a difference.
1: And forgive me for being the naysayer. But it takes a more well-formulated medical and mental hygiene system to accomplish all that. And, you know, there's just really not a lot of stomach to push that in America. I'm listening on the way down here to NPR, and Mississippi is way behind in vaccination rate. And as I heard, it's just way behind in, in the public medical care that's available. People don't think about don't have access to preventive care. So I'm thinking, holy cow, if they don't have the basic physical medicine in place, talking about this kind of program is just going to be a bridge too far.
2: Well, you know, if you, if you think back, you know, as I was saying before, you, a lot of things that build resiliency don't necessarily have to come from the medical system. It can be Whoever that trusted adult is, having someone who is stable and supportive and showing them that there's another way that can be, you know, as I said, a pastor, it can be really any number of people to fill that gap. That is really the most important. And yes, counseling is very, very important. And that can also come from multiple resources you know pediatricians um, as I am one um, we don't do the actual counseling piece but we do a lot of the kind of mental health management if, if there's something more significant like depression or anxiety that might require some medication we're available to do that um, and most primary care providers are so um, that would be you know one place that someone could access if they're not able to get linked with the mental health system um, counseling you know can take place there, school-based services sometimes available. There's community-based services. So um, while I definitely agree we have a lot of work to do within our mental health system to develop all the resources we need. And actually, I, I do believe that with COVID, we're, we're going to just see even more of a strain on that system. Um, but, you know, really thinking as a community how we can support youth. Um, and, you know, another piece that we haven't really brought up yet, but, you know, children of incarcerated parents and how they're affected by things and, and their ACEs, That that's another whole... Um, issue.
0: When we were uh, talking um, before we started about the um, anti-mask people, um, I, it occurs to me that some decisions we want children to be able to make or we leave it to them. Um, understand there's an issue about maturity, but as a pediatrician, what type of decisions are you comfortable with children making about their health care or are you not comfortable with them making decisions about their healthcare?
2: Wow, that is <laughs> that is such a loaded question. You, <laughs> you know, in medicine, you know, or in medical ethics, we talk a lot about that because, you know, what if a child needs a treatment and they don't want that treatment, but they're not old enough to give consent. And so we really do try to empower our pediatric patients just as, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom of, of three boys, and I really do try to empower them to make decisions and hope that, you know, if they make a decision that I don't necessarily agree with, you know, that we can talk through it. Um, but but we definitely do want to um, help with the decision-making process, but empower them um, to be play a role, play a responsible role. You know, when I'm talking to my kids who have asthma, for example, about their medication, if you're 14 years old and you're choosing not to take your medication, you know, a little bit of that responsibility is on you and some of the responsibility is on me as your physician and educating you on the importance of taking that medication. And some is also on your parents, like making sure that medication's available and you know giving the reminders that we have to do as parents. So it's sort of a shared responsibility, just as the decision-making in medicine, we really try and encourage it to be a shared decision-making between the child who can't legally give consent, but we really do want them to be able to give their assent um, to a treatment or a treatment course or a treatment plan.
0: The the law has a similar um, I guess uh, issue and overlay with that uh, in uh, you know child custody issues at some point even though the child is not emancipated uh, he or she has some role or some decision in whether they want to go spend visitation days with mom or dad. And I've seen uh, courts will refuse to hold a parent uh, responsible if a 15 or 16-year-old says, I don't want to go this weekend with, with mom or dad. And uh, oftentimes the way the courts deal with it is they appoint a lawyer, one lawyer to say what's in the best interest of the child, and the second lawyer to say, I'm advocating for the child, whether it's in their best interest or not. Uh, it always seemed to me to be a kind of a Cumbersome? Yeah, cumbersome and strange way to approach the the situation. Um, What do you think um, uh, uh, the difference then between a juvenile judge handling these issues and just a regular general, uh, you know, common pleas judge? uh, To me, I think both may be equipped to decide whether a person should be incarcerated for a specific length of time, whether they were juvenile tried as an adult or an adult tried as an adult you seem to be suggesting that the juvenile system and those judges are better equipped.
2: Um, I definitely don't know that I would say that. I don't know enough about the system to say one way or the other. But just in, you know, thinking about it from the medical system, we have a, we have physicians who are trained to manage adults because they have different needs. And we have physicians trained to take care of kids because they have different needs. And so I don't know what the training is with the juvenile justice courts compared to adults but i would hope that because it's a different population with different needs um that they might have some different training and so maybe they have training in aces and resiliency um i'm not aware like Mm -hmm. i'm not knowledgeable enough about the system to be able to speak to that
0: one of the concerns i have about the system to answer a little bit of my own question there was uh in the uh, adult court you have um minimum mandatory sentencing, you've got all sorts of sentencing guidelines for for adults. Um, I believe that the juvenile system has a lot more discretion, and to me that's a good thing.
1: Let's go back to how you would like to see things if you were in charge. So pretend that you are for a minute. Okay. You're in charge of the <laughs> You're in charge of the criminal law system as a whole. So, you'd like to extend that end age to somewhere in the 20s for where you make the distinction?
2: I I think that's reasonable. You know, I also think that when we're making any sort of change, it's important to bring everyone to the table. So, I know also um, on one side you have the families and victims of juvenile offenders, and I know that they feel really strongly about. Um, what is appropriate and what's fair. So I think, you know, having those conversations and, and having everyone's voice heard is really important. Um, but taking into the account that, um, you know, who we were at 21 is also not who we are today. And so...
1: Well, let me capture that first. Let sure. me stop you right there. Yeah. So we have... Let, let's assume that you're in charge and a 21-year-old doesn't necessarily, in your, in, in your best situation, doesn't have to be treated like a 35-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I suppose you would say, well, let's take that 21-year-old... <laughs> We might keep him in a different kind of rehabilitation system for some number of years Mm -hmm. than uh, someone who committed uh, a crime at 30. We would treat those people completely differently.
2: That seems like something that could be studied and would be a potential really positive thing because we know that the brain of a 21-year-old and the brain of that 35-year-old aren't the same.
1: I like the idea, just that's like moving a mountain in our system.
2: Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a difficult system, and you guys know way more about it than I do. But even, you know, the different detention centers run by different entities makes it very hard to have consistent, you know, structure, um, for, especially for our juveniles.
0: Well, what? Bothers me about the system too, uh, many things. But uh, to think about a uh, you know seventeen year old that's transferred to adult court, convicted, and then sentenced goes to an adult prison, and that to me makes no sense. Talk at
2: about all. trauma, right? Mate.
0: Yeah, and and danger, and uh, that person will probably never get over that. No, um, I, I don't understand why that court can't um, fashion a a sentence that puts them in the juvenile system, at least for a while. Um,
1: I don't know. Have, have you had the opportunity to study the effects of juveniles who are put in the criminal, in the adult criminal system? Mm-mm. I was just, I, I asked because I was reading, and it seems from what little I've read, and again, Gonzo and I are civil law lawyers, not criminal law lawyers, but it seems that there's a much higher incidence of mental harm for those folks, and there's also a higher incidence of people of color being being bound over, as the term goes.
2: That does not surprise me at all.
0: And to add to that, I think the statistics show they're more likely to continue uh, with the criminal behavior yeah. after you know their sentence um, if they're incarcerated like that at a young age.
1: I want to change the course of the conversation just a little, and I want to, in light of what we've seen in terms of politicians being accused of bad conduct as youngsters, so let's assume that Gonzo and I want to bring a lawyer into the firm, and it becomes known that he was accused of inappropriate behavior, sexual assault, high school maybe early years of college, drunkenness, the kind of things we would read. Good lawyer, seems to be a good person, but there's this history. So, when we're evaluating whether you should become part of the firm, and we we have this issue, how do you analyze that? How do you treat that? What's the decision process?
2: Well, it's not an easy one, that's for sure. Okay. you know as I said at the very beginning I do think that there should be consequences I mean gosh just ask my kids I'm like we have a lot of consequences at my house but I I do I do believe that if you do something wrong you hurt somebody there should be a consequence absolutely um you know if this event happened when that person was 15 years old and now they're, I don't know, how old and
1: young. say he's 35.
2: 35 now sitting in your office and he is now a fine, upstanding gentleman. I mean, I think that that is a decision your group has to make. Um, you know, his brain was not fully developed. That is not an excuse. Um, but to you know, still hold that 35-year-old sitting in front of you um, still to still be, you know, making him pay for that incident when he was fifteen. I mean, that's kind of a decision your group has to make.
1: Well, I, let's not talk in terms of he has to pay. And let okay. me alter the facts just a little. Okay. Let's make him nineteen years old.
2: When he when he, I think it's really the same thing. I know that the legal system uses the age eighteen, but when I'm thinking about it from a neurobiological framework. His brain is still immature. I got Uh, I still made stupid decisions when I was 19 and older than that, too.
1: (laughs) And and I'm part of that club, too. But here's what I want to get to. Is it practical to say, hey, Joe, we heard about this stuff at age 19.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Let's have a discussion about that. Or do you just go with he was 19 and stupid? Is it worth having that kind of discussion? Is there anything to be gained from it?
2: I think so, because... It's on all your minds, right? Everyone is thinking about it. It's it's the elephant in the room. I absolutely think calling it out and and saying, you know, you know, we we know that this happened. Um, you know, it's it's definitely something that we we're, we're talking about, we're thinking about, you know, What's what's your input on this? And and who knows um, what the applicant might say. There may have been some profound life changes that came out of that experience and some real insight and some real um, growth that happened. Um, And that would be really important for you to know. You know, if they say something like, well, I'm, you know, currently there's a warrant out for my arrest for something similar. Well, then that really helps make your decision because maybe – they're still in that same pattern of poor behavior, and that is really important to know. But if they've if grown from it and you know matured, that's something that that is you should take into account, in my opinion.
0: It's a difficult um, analysis because we all know um, most people don't commit sexual assault when they're juveniles. So there's a lot of people out there that have the same immature or undeveloped frontal lobe and don't do something uh, that is that, that, you know, uh, uh, I guess egregious. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a sliding scale. I mean, if you're stealing, um, you know, uh, gas caps off your neighbor's vehicle, (laughs) I could see maybe still giving that person the job. Uh, But at at some point, to me, it gets to the point where, even though you're a different person now, um, you know, maybe there are candidates out there that don't have that. And I'm starting to think that might not be a, a fair analysis talking to you, uh, Dr. Denny, about this stuff. Um, uh, I guess in my mind, I, I I try to, you know, people seem to be the same throughout their life and certainly when you think about it, we've all changed a lot. So.
1: Well, I, I think what Sarah is saying, you, you gotta see if there has been an evolution or not, right?
2: Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously this is all my opinion, but it is based in science and neurodevelopment. But I I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this on this, so you guys may have to cut this. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I listen to the podcast Ear Hustle, which I'm oh, not yeah. sure. Okay, so. Oh, wh- you know, wh-
1: excuse me. Why would you not feel comfortable talking about that? Well,
2: no, I'm comfortable. I just didn't know if I was allowed to say, like, other podcasts on why your podcast. <laughs> But, you know, honestly. <clears throat>
1: that's, that's a great podcast.
2: There's a few things that have really changed my whole passion for the justice system. Yeah. One is reading the book Just Mercy. Uh-huh. And two is listening to the podcast Ear Hustle. And you listen to these men who have been in prison for 40, 50 years for this armed robbery of a gas station when they were 19 years old. And you're like, what are we doing? What are we doing? This is not the same person. Why is so much time and money being put into keeping this person in prison still, um, and I'm, because
1: it makes us feel good, that's why.
2: But does it? I it makes me feel awful.
1: Well, it does if you're enlightened, but <laughs> but for the average, but for the average politician, it feels good.
2: Well, I just think you know, if if that person was 19, and now they're 68, how do we expect? I mean, we haven't given them another chance, and how do we expect them to be? able to function in a, a, you know, contributory fashion if we let them out at age 70 when their entire experience has been in prison?
0: It's um, And a lot of that's procedural, and it drives uh, lawyers like Jack and me crazy when the courts aren't looking at the substantive issue there, the fairness about it. They're just looking at a procedure. Um, If you're in prison and you are serving a mandatory sentence... You have to serve it. If you're serving a mandatory sentence plus additional years after the mandatory sentence, you can go to the judge and say, "Look, I'm a different person. I'm rehabilitated." And there's a so it's a it's a procedure, and these appellate courts and our Supreme Court are just you know, hey, that's the procedure we're going to follow it because you know the legislature set that. It's it gets very very frustrating, and back to our idea of. Um, uh, Juveniles being different and given a second chance, I think the law somewhat recognizes that because juveniles can seal their record, right?
1: Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, you usually you don't find out about somebody's juvenile uh, history because it's been sealed. And it doesn't factor into these decisions later. Now, that doesn't apply to the press or to, you know, mm-hmm. anybody else looking into things and bringing them up. But certainly the, the court system... Um, uh, you know, does have some recognition that uh, juvenile uh, behavior can be protected.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I definitely think the juvenile justice system is moving in the right direction.
0: What do you think about, um, if we're, we're, again, back to subject about children making their own decisions, um, the, the parents that are um, not sending their kids to school with the mask in places where COVID is out, outbreaks are, you know, uh, obviously on the increase. Can those children make their own decisions?
2: That's a great question. <clears throat> Excuse me, that's a great question. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is is that kids really don't care that much about wearing a mask. They really don't. I am with kids all day long. They all wear their masks in my office. I have kids at home. They wear their masks when we go out and about. The parents care way more about this issue than the kids. So if the kids get to school and everyone's wearing a mask, I don't think that the kids are going to have an issue. Now, then the child is being put in a position where they're like, oh my gosh, my mom or dad's going to get really mad at me if they find out I was wearing a mask at school. But all my friends are wearing a mask. So now I feel like weird because I'm the one not wearing the mask. So I think it's actually putting the child in a really tricky situation, if I'm honest. I also think, you know, if we can just separate all of this politics of COVID and politics of masking and just think, what's the best thing for my kid? Is the best thing for my kid to be back in hybrid learning? Is the best thing for my kid to be quarantined? Is the best thing for my kid to be out of school and isolated again? I I don't know many people who would say yes. We need our kids in school. We need them to be making connections, building those relationships. I mean, learning, yes, that's great. But there's so much more to being Mm -hmm. in school, and that's what we really need, and that's what we need to build that resilience. It all goes back to that resiliency piece um, to to help them. And so if it means wearing a mask to keep your kid in school – Just wear the
0: mask. Seems like a no-brainer. I was listening to a guy uh, try to explain, you know, how his uh, civil liberties are being violated. And then the reporter asked him, well, what about your child? And he says, well, in all honesty, he loves wearing a mask because he feels like a ninja. (laughs) And so the reporter said, then why not let him? And he said, well, you know, at some point he's going to learn that it's a civil liberty that they're taking away. And I thought, no. No. That that just seems ridiculous to me, but um, I I would struggle with it. Uh, You know, uh, God bless our kids are all out of the home and and on their own, and and we don't have kids in the school, but it certainly worries me. I was telling Jack that if we had kids in the school, I'd probably be more vocal and more outspoken at the uh, school board meetings about it. Dr. Denny, thanks for um, coming here and talking to us. I've read um, blogs and, and some of the articles that you've written. I know that you are a champion for the um, health and safety of children. You're after my own heart, uh, we're both against trampolines. <laughs> we want kids to wear helmets when they're biking. And I'm glad that, uh, that you're out there and, um, and advocating for children and, and that you spent some time with us.
2: Well, thank you. And thanks for covering this topic. I think it's really important that we're talking about it and realizing the connection between science and brain development and, and how that intersects with the justice system. And that um, we're headed the right direction and there's things that we can still continue to improve and keep advocating for our kids.
1: Yeah, I want to thank you for being our guest today as well. And I want you to know I'm a big fan of the Academy, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I got to know through my uh, work as a Kiwanian some mm-hmm. years back. So the AAP is always on the vanguard of safety and pushing for important issues. So I'm a big fan of the work that you and your colleagues do.
0: Well, thank
1: you. We'll be back in a few weeks to talk with Joni Akouf. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, from The Ohio State University, we'll be talking about critical race theory. So until then, you can find our podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can also find us at lawyer up Columbus. So until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.